as JP just said, today we are in Matthew 17, um, and we're going to go straight to it. So um, if you've got your Bible with you, please turn there, or you can read along with me um, on the screen. And we're looking at verses 1 to 8. It says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Okay. So <laughs> there's a lot going on in these eight verses. And I wonder if I asked you to sum it up, where would you even start? Uh, if you'd sneezed at some point during that um, reading, you'd probably have missed about five key things. So let's just recap what's going on here. We have Jesus and three disciples on a high mountain. Jesus' face is shining. Then Moses and Elijah literally appear have a conversation with Jesus. Meanwhile, Peter's personality means that he has a rule about putting his foot in it like once a day. So he decides to build tents for some reason. He is interrupted in this by a literal voice from a cloud that is the voice of God. Then deep spiritual fear come upon the disciples at the holiness of God. And then Jesus reaches out and touches them and comforts them with three words that sound a bit too good to be true, but because they're from the mouth of Jesus, we can trust them. Have no fear. Then we finish with the disciples beholding Jesus and Jesus alone. I actually just want to um, start for a couple of minutes um, just on those words from Jesus. Have no fear. I think that we all need to hear those words every day. And um, some of us in the room particularly need to hear them at the moment. Whatever distress or suffering or battle with sin or distance you feel from God that you feel today, these are the words of Jesus for you. Have no fear. If you don't hear anything else for the rest of the message, feel free to just <laughs> stay on that. That is Jesus' tone. That is Jesus' approach. That is Jesus' posture to us today. You are supposed to be here. Um, I um, have quite an unfortunate habit, <laughs> I would say, of falling asleep during key moments of films, TV shows. doesn't really matter what it is. I'm a good time for a nap for me, apparently. It, I, this often happens particularly during complex legal dramas, which... My husband particularly enjoys. And I kid you not, they're like a lullaby to me. I'll go right off. I legitimately think I've been awake for about 50% of the West Wing that I've seen, which I know is great sacrilege to many in the room. <laughs> I apologise. <laughs> um, but anyway, the point I'm making is this. It's quite disorientating to wake up halfway through something and not really know what I'm supposed to know. 
like not know what I don't know, <laughs> not know what I'm supposed to be understanding or what's going to be explained later. So I'll say to whoever happens to be in the room with me, are we aware? What's going on? <laughs> Am I supposed to know who that is? Who's that woman? Is the dog still alive? Where are we? What's in that briefcase? I don't know if this is true for you, but sometimes when I come to passages like this in the Bible, I can feel similarly disorientated. I can read series of events like this and feel like I've missed something and wonder, am I supposed to know what's going on or is it going to be explained later? If we're watching a film and we've not got in mind some of the clues that were put in place earlier in the story, because in my case, you've had a nap, <laughs> then we'll miss the significance of, say, the briefcase. Apparently, this is a film from the 90s, because I'm not sure I've seen a briefcase for about 10 years. Um, but anyway, in the same way, there are hints and clues and references in the Bible that can really help us understand what's going on in a passage like this in the New Testament. And I think this is particularly true of this one today. Even in the very first verse of this passage, Matthew is setting us up with some clues about what might be about to happen. So let's just look at the very first verse. To start with, the first three words, after six days. Now, this is the only place in Matthew that he's so specific about a period of time. That should make us ask some questions, pay attention. Um, It says after six days. So this is happening on the seventh day. And what do we know about the seventh day? It's a day of rest. It's a day of worship. And the number of seven is a number of perfection. So we'll bear that in mind. The next thing then, Jesus takes with him Peter, James, and John. Notice this isn't all of the disciples. This is Jesus in a circle, three people. There's something else going on here, though. At least five times in scripture, we're told about the necessity of having two or three witnesses to confirm the authenticity of something that's happened that will later be spoken about. So we might be thinking, seeing that, what's about to happen is important enough to be witnessed and testified about later. And then thirdly, high mountain. Now, this is a really juicy one. (laughs) Whenever we see a mountain, In the Old Testament, we can expect that something big is about to happen. Significant moments in Israel's history happened on mountains. Not all of them, but lots of them. They are places where God appears in power to meet with his people. So, if we're to put that all together then, what Matthew has set us up with, even in verse 1, Jesus is taking witnesses up a high mountain on a day representing perfection, to see something significant. The scene is already set for something big to happen. And then actually, we don't just get one big thing that happens here. There are actually three major things that happen on this mountain. It's called the transfiguration in your Bibles, but I reckon these are all three equally significant. The first is, of course, though, the transfiguration itself, a word that you only see here in this passage and never anywhere else in life. So um, slightly bizarre to try and try and get our heads around it. And I think Matthew's done a job of trying to explain it based on what the disciples have said, but it's probably very hard to describe. What we're told is that Jesus' appearance is dramatically changed. 
verse 2, it says, He was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Now, there are literally thousands, maybe millions, of depictions of what Jesus might have looked like in history, in art, in tat shops, and nearly all of them, whether or not that Jesus is confusingly blonde, depict Jesus as very beautiful, as radiant, perfect skin, flowing locks. (laughs) And actually, this isn't very helpful for us. And not just because it confused that grandma who hung the picture of Ewan McGregor on her wall thinking it was Jesus. I don't know if you've seen that, but you should Google it because it's really funny. (laughs) Um, Isaiah, um, in chapter 53, slightly bursts our bubble here when he tells us that Jesus had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus is the only person in all history who got to decide what he would look like when he was born, and he chose no beauty. This is the humility of Jesus. Don't you want to trust him? But here on this mountain, the disciples glimpse a small window of the eternal glory that this God-man laid aside to come and be with us. This is the glory that he was soon to receive from the Father, in resurrection power, having conquered death. This is the glory that he now has as a man for all eternity. In Luke's account of the transfiguration, he tells us that the disciples woke up when they saw this, which, unless they're just super sleepy, probably means that this happened at night. Can you imagine the scene? The one who is himself the light of the world, bursting through the darkness, as on the first day of creation. Perhaps John, one of the witnesses here, had this moment in mind when he wrote that the light shines in the darkness and has not overcome it. And the darkness has not overcome it. That's important. (laughs) Now, this is undoubtedly an amazing event for the disciples to have witnessed and is in itself causes us to worship Jesus. But you still might be wondering bit like waking up halfway through the film. Why why has this happened? (laughs) Am I supposed to understand why his face is shining? What is the story that God is telling us through this event? And just as before, to find out, it's helpful to just look back at a few clues in the rest of the Bible. So here are three examples of glorious appearances in the Old Testament. Firstly, chapter one of the book of Ezekiel, he has a vision of a man on a throne who was like glowing metal and fire. In Psalm 104, God covers himself with light as with a garment. In the book of Daniel, the ancient of days is described as having clothing as white as snow. Now what's happening in each of these passages, it's a description of divine glory, of God's glory. And here we have Jesus described the same way. Glowing covered in light, with bright white clothing. What's happening at Jesus' transfiguration isn't a random or novel event, but a demonstration that this man is none other than the God of Israel, the Ancient of Days, the eternal second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. This is Yahweh. This is God himself. 
We'll often sing a song here on a Sunday that goes, your hidden glory in creation now revealed in you, our Christ. And this is exactly what's going on at the transfiguration. See, the son of God is not new on the scene. So Jesus isn't a new character introduced in the second season. <laughs> when we rewatch the first season, we see that he was in every scene. We see him veiled as one called the angel of the Lord in Genesis. The man wrestling with Jacob, the commander of the armies of the Lord in Joshua, the fourth man in the fire in Daniel. Whenever God speaks, moves or acts in the Old Testament, the Son is present as the eternal word of God. But now, here, on the Mount of Transfiguration, the veil has been removed and the disciples witness the image of the invisible God. The man, Jesus, who is himself the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So far in this gospel, in our preaching series through Matthew, we've seen many indications that this miracle working teacher is God. But here, Matthew wants to make it clear beyond any doubt, this man is divine. Matthew calls to us through this passage, along with Isaiah, who wrote about good news on another high mountain, saying, behold your God. So I said there were three significant things that happened on this mountain. The first then, transfiguration. The second, the appearance of Moses and Elijah. Now, perhaps you've read this story in the Gospels before. You've heard um, an account of the transfiguration and you've wondered, like me, why and how do Moses and Elijah appear? Perhaps when you heard me read it out, you thought, oh, great, we're going to get some answers. Why has God brought dead men back for this event? And why specifically these two out of all the possible people? And if you were thinking that, then you are not in luck. Because <laughs> it seems to be a bit of a mystery that they are here. Different theologians do have some different ideas. So some of these are that um, Moses and Elijah reflect and represent the law and the prophets. So they sort of sum them up in themselves. Both of them have mysterious deaths or mysterious departures from this world. We know that it from Luke that Jesus discusses his departure with them. So maybe that makes them good candidates for discussing death. They both have significant encounters with God on mountains, namely Sinai, which I think is probably significant. Like they've been here before. They've done this before. Perhaps all of these things are at play here. As a home group this week, we had a chat about this passage. And we actually had a couple more questions that the commentators didn't really seem to discuss. Um, did Moses and Elijah travel from the past or the present, or the future? Did they have a briefing from God beforehand? Did they know they were coming? Did they recognize each other? I can't help that, but think these are the sorts of questions that the disciples ask Jesus in the Gospels, and his response is normally like, Fuck. <laughs> so we won't dwell on those. The Bible doesn't give us um, answers to those, but there are things that we do know. Matthew grew up in the Jewish faith, 
which means that Moses and Elijah would have been a massive deal in his life. He'd have heard about them all the time. From when he was a kid, in Sabbath school, from his parents, on the playground, maybe they played Exodus. I don't know. (laughs) But even though the Moses and the Elijah are literally right here, in this passage, they're sort of just like a throwaway line because all the focus is on Jesus. Similarly, for Peter, James, and John, coming up the mountain, if Jesus had said, oh, by the way, at the top of this mountain, we're going to hang out with Moses and Elijah, they would probably have lost their minds. But actually, the final line of our passage sums up the mesmerizing glory of Christ at the heart of this account. It says they saw no one but Jesus only. This Jesus who they spent all their time with is the focus of all their attention. Alistair Roberts puts it like this. Moses and the law testified to the glory of God. Christ is that glory. The law and the prophets are fading away because the one they pointed to is now here in the fullness of time. Okay, so we've had the changing of Jesus' appearance, Moses and Elijah. Now we come to the third big thing that happens during this passage. Here we um, have a cloud that appears and a voice, the voice of the Father over Jesus. And um, we have another Old Testament reference here that should make our alarm bells um, ring a little bit. When we see a cloud in the Old Testament, it normally means the presence of God has arrived. I imagine Matthew's hearers listening to this story being read out. You could have heard a pin drop at this moment because the cloud is here. The presence of God is here. What is about to happen? What is the father going to say on this most magnificent, this most holy moment? Perhaps something severe, something mysterious, something incomprehensible. What are we going to hear from the heart of the uncreated God? Verse 5 says, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. That's what God says. This man here, I love him. I am so pleased with him. If you dug and dug through all wisdom, through all history, even all eternity, you would find no greater reality than this. For this is who God is, a father delighting in his son. Have you noticed that God doesn't seem to be speaking to Jesus here, but rather about him? God is addressing the disciples directly, and he's also addressing us directly. Which means we're not only invited in to watch something, even though that would be wonderful in itself, but we are brought into this story. We are being told something by God, and it's really good news. Why is it good news that we have a God who points to his son? Well, as a starter, I can think of two reasons. I'm sure there's loads more. The first reason is quite simple, really. 
The father points us to the son because the son is the very best thing we could look at. Because we were made to behold the son. It's what our souls cry out for, like a deer pants for water. In Colossians 2, Paul says, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We will never exhaust the beauty and wonder of looking to the sun. The second reason that it's good for us to have a God who loves his son is because we get in on this same love. If you are a Christian, that is synonymous with saying that you have been adopted by the Father through Jesus Christ. And this is what that means. What the Father says over the Son is what the Father says over you. If a cloud appeared over your head now and God were to speak from it, this is what he would say over you. This is my beloved son or my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. You cannot be unadopted. You cannot leave the love of the Father. You do not go in and out of the affections of God. He will not change his mind about you. You are his son. And because of the work of the cross on your behalf, with you, he is well pleased. Before we invite the band up to worship and fix our eyes on Jesus, I'd love to focus for a second on the other thing that the father says on this mountain. He says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Moses prophesied about another who was coming up after him, who would be raised up from among God's people. And he said, it is to him that you shall listen. Here in Moses' very presence, these words are fulfilled. Listen to him. How easy is it for our wayward hearts to hear the words, listen to him, and respond the same way we would if someone was saying, please listen to the following health and safety announcements. <laughs> Jesus didn't travel from heaven to earth to come and give us some good advice. He came with words of life itself. When we hear the words, listen to him, we're invited to let our souls respond saying, where else could I go? You have the words of eternal life. If we saw what these disciples saw on that day, I don't think we would have trouble finding those words. We don't listen to Jesus to get in, to be saved. We listen to Jesus because he saved us. Remember, we're not trying to earn the approval of the Father. We have it. <laughs> but those who love Jesus obey him. So... Leads to the question, how? How do I do that? How do we listen to Jesus? What does that mean? Well, I think a pretty good place to start and end and everything in between is that we don't lose our wonder that we have this book in our hands. These are the words of Jesus. And his spirit at work in us pushes these words into our hearts and his word is powerful to change us. It's in no small way that through this book, we can behold the glory of the Lord. And here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians about what happens when we do that. 
and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Jesus' transfiguration was the beginning of ours. As we listen to him, we become like him. If this book didn't say that, I would scarcely dare believe it. How could we come up with that? But this is what it says, that when we see Jesus, when we follow Jesus, when we listen to Jesus, when we lay down our lives and let Jesus pick them up again, we don't just become nicer people, we become like Jesus. Hank, can I invite you up? I think this passage simply really is about two things. Looking at Jesus and listening to Jesus. Looking at the one who has made the invisible God known to us and joyfully responding to who he is by following him in freedom. We're going to do that now. Maybe I could invite you to stand if you're able. We're just going to start by fixing our eyes on Jesus. I think that's the best response (laughs) to this passage that I found. We're going to behold his glory and ask him. If it's something that you're struggling with at the moment to see Jesus, ask him. He loves to come and show us who he is. Thanks, Hannah.